Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, who are the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. And it's broadcast across the Community Radio Network. I'm Shahrazad Blue and welcome back. So in today's episode, we'll be looking at the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on what's been called the shadow pandemic, that is, of sexual and domestic violence in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Since the outbreak of COVID, developing data shows that all types of violence against women and girls in particular, and domestic violence, has intensified. Globally, an increase in COVID-19 continues to strain health and essential services, including domestic violence shelters and helplines. This week on October 11th, the Aotearoa-based Taui Caucus presented some of their research into sexual violence and and the COVID-19 pandemic based on rapid assessment data. So here to tell us more about it is Hala Nasser and Miriam Dioa Sessa. So Hala Nasser is a sexual and gender violence-based specialist with experience working in sexual and domestic violence response and prevention programs and workplace equality and violence programs. Her family hail from Egypt, but she was born and raised in, in Tamaki Makaorao, now residing on unceded Wurundjeri lands in Nam, Melbourne. Miriam Dioa Sessa is an Italian-English national who began feminist and social justice activism at the age of 14 while living in Rome. For the last 10 years, she has worked in different areas of the specialist sexual violence sector and is an experienced facilitator and community educator and organiser in the area of violence prevention and intervention. Um, so welcome to the show, Hala and Miriam. Kia ora koutou katoa, ko Miriam Aho. My name is Miriam Joya Sessa. I am currently uh, connecting with you from Tamaki Makaurau, which is Auckland over in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, these are land, there are 14 iwi actually on this specific spot where my house is. So aroha mai. Kia ora, I'm Hala, I'm also a Kiwi, uh, but I'm zooming in from unceded Wurundjeri land, so I also pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So you were recently in a webinar panel on sexual violence and the COVID-19 pandemic um, and a summary of rapid assessment data. So can you just tell us what the rapid assessment tool is and how it works? So rapid assessments are a global best practice for evidence-based emergency planning and response. Quite simply, they're a data collection tool and they're commonly used at the beginning of an emergency and, um, you know, throughout an emergency to get a lay of the land. Uh, In the context of Aotearoa in the COVID-19 pandemic with the lockdown last year, specifically around the end of March 2020, Uh, Frontline sexual violence services used rapid assessments to capture uh, what was happening, 
pressing needs, um, barriers to service provision. And um, I think most importantly, it gave voice to survivors of sexual violence, but also the workforce itself. This data helped us to inform the collective storytelling that as a sector, as, as, a, as frontline services, we wanted um, to tell and the advocacy uh, towards government, especially in, in relation to resource allocation. Uh, I guess putting uh, sexual violence on the at the forefront of COVID-19 response. Mm. And this data did go quite high um, in terms of where um, where it ended up in terms of government reports. Um, so it would um, be regularly, every, so we collected it initially fortnightly and then every month, and then that will be provided as part of the data sets that would go to um, New Zealand Cabinet um, to actually make decisions both in terms of broader social issues, but more specific around the COVID-19 allocation of funding. As frontline services as well, like we're so used to being uh, reactive in the sense that um, our priority is uh, working with survivors and ensuring survivors' um, needs are met. But without that kind of taking that step back and being able to tell the story of what's going on and the trends of what our sector is experiencing, um, we're not able to mobilise resources in a way that's effective. Um, so this tool was really helpful, I guess, like as a feminist who believes in uh, feminist mobilisation and movement building, it was such an important tool for relationship building um, as well as um, feminist mobilisation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted um, sexual and domestic violence in Aotearoa? In reflection to how the pandemic has impacted places like Italy, where there's been a widespread COVID um, infections and really high death rate, the, there's that element that I think that we've had a, a slightly lesser impact, that we haven't had the trauma of mass spread deaths here. But for the moment, we've been able to have quite a contained existence, um, separated from the rest of the world, but contained. But even though it's been contained and we haven't seen mass lockdowns and continuous lockdowns for, long amount, for a significant amount of times, we're seeing increases in domestic and sexual violence. During the lockdowns, there was a decrease in reporting and a decrease in accessing help. And that's a little bit of what our data tells over time as well as at the peak of the lockdowns is there's limited access to help seeking for many many reasons um, but also there's an increase in risk of um, violence within house settings and family settings so we did see a spike in child sexual abuse um, reporting to our services um, as well as some other interesting and I think heartbreaking actually was uh, increase in access from the elderly where obviously the people's common coping mechanisms of you know keeping busy or going out and about were suddenly taken away and then people were starting to disclose historical um, historical sexual violence or historical abuse because those coping mechanisms were no longer there for them. And I think those were the types of things that um, you know, we, would, we would have never predicted that. Um, and there was some interesting stories that came out from, our, from the data that we were collecting uh, monthly. There's also been media reports of increases in people asking for mental health support over the past year and a half. And I think they're quite significant increases. So mm. I know you just talked a little bit about the impacts. Are there any other sort of overarching trends that you have seen? So we've seen a definite increase in 
help seeking overall. One of the themes that we did find in our assessments is that actually the pandemic highlighted pre-existing vulnerabilities to the system in general, not just to our communities. And so the vulnerabilities that we have was are that um, over over many decades the the um, the government has not invested in workforce development. So we have a shortage of psychologists, counsellors, therapists of any type, any kind of talk therapy. Um, so that's one of the compounding factors. Um, we also have had, you know, a great movement like Me Too and um, increased awareness raising, and that hasn't matched with increased service delivery um, and necessarily increased resourcing for that service delivery. And in and here we've also just recently, um, for the last three years, we've also had an, uh, a Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse in State Care. So that has also created it. So we've had three um, major um, factors that have pushed more demand onto services. And I think there's also another reflection that um, I know Helen and I have been talking about a lot is like lots of the models of care are very much Eurocentric and, um, and you know, white focused of, um, you know, it's one-on-one -on -one therapy and we aren't actually thinking about other ways of delivering service. And I think there needs to be a fundamental shift of A, how we talk about um, impacts and, you know, people's, how people can heal and what that might look like and really diversify that healing journey for people because one-on-one therapy is what we consistently push and as soon as there's any issues like go to therapy and that will be your magical cure when actually there might be a lot more we can do at community levels a lot more we can do is at a collective level instead of individualizing and you know making the problem the individual um, instead of a collective solution also there isn't currently space when we think about collective responses for survivor groups to come together and in fact the system is set up in such a way to protect, protect confidentiality, obviously, um, but it assumes that confidentiality is a priority to the survivor. It actually mm. doesn't create space for agency and a survivor deciding actually, um, I want to speak out or I want to connect with other survivors. Um, I want to normalize. I want to feel like what I'm experiencing as a result of this violence is normal and that I'm not alone. How can I do that outside of the one-on-one -on -one therapy space? And beyond just Googling, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm part of a statistic, um, how, how can we create a human-centred space where people, i.e. survivors, can connect and grow together in their healing journeys? I find that point, especially when we're talking about systems, really interesting. Like, I know there's been a huge push around so-called Australia to push for restorative justice measures, but then there's even problems with that. I was looking at those sort of things in, in Aotearoa, and yeah, I've just been finding reports of having police as mediators in family violence cases is actually quite problematic as they don't have the proper training, but also, you know, it's the police. I'm happy to answer that. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think um, just from my experience of working here, there is a real difference between the sexual violence restorative justice approach and the um, family violence or domestic violence restorative justice approach here in Aotearoa. Um, so in the mainstream, in the non-Kopapa Māori 
space um, because that's still being developed. Um, in the sexual violence space, there's a there's actually an organisation called Project Restore and they are specialists in doing restorative justice for sexual violence because it is actually very nuanced and requires a high level of skill and it's a journey that they go on with um, specialists that work with the survivor and specialists that work with the person who um, is the person who's been harmful, abusive or violent and it's sometimes it takes up to a year before they get to a place where the person who's been um, who's been abusive is ready to take responsibility at a level that is actually going to be useful for the survivor. So it has a very therapeutic approach, um, and the the level of um, like the level of nuance and sophistication of their practice is actually quite high. And so I would absolutely agree with those reports where, you know, if it's done without specialisation by people who don't know what they're doing, there's a high risk of harm um, because it is quite a complicated, it's not not complicated in the sense of, oh, it's so complicated and only special people have to do it, but there's a lot of checking in around people's needs when they're ready, um, pacing, timing, checking in and then getting to a place where it's actually going to be restorative for the survivor because it's survivor-centred, not um, not because it's some other agenda. From a conceptual perspective, I think parts of the problem in sectors in the sector in both uh, so-called Australia and Aotearoa is, uh, is this detachment from the kind of feminist uh, foundations of sexual violence, domestic violence movements, yeah, um, there'll be pockets within the sector that might have carceral feminist perspectives around uh, in relation to policing and responses to people who use violence in relationships or outside of relationships. But yeah, I, I think that personally, and I don't want to speak for you, Miriam, but I, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page about this, that, you know, it's really important that the sexual violence sector, domestic violence sectors come back to that kind of um, activist uh, movement space from which um, these sectors actually came from um, after, you know, de- decades and decades of activist work on the front line to, to bring these issues to the fore. We have been kind of embedded into this neoliberal capitalist system. Uh, I have a lot to say about this, but quite basically, w- when we become embedded in this capitalist system, um, we've also, our responses to violence have also been enveloped in the capitalist kind of, you know, carceral res- response, right? Um, so I think as a sector or activist specialist within the space, there is, um, I feel like it, there's a moment, a, a time now where we, we need to step back to those roots and reflect on uh, the feminist lenses that shape our responses Personally, uh, I totally support anti-carceral feminist responses and I don't think police are the answer, but I acknowledge within the current system that they're a a tool that we use because we have to. There's a high level of being able to hold the contradiction eh, of um, being fundamentally revolutionary while figuring out what is useful reform to do now um, that will improve the lives of people right now and I think that that balance that tension of going fundamentally everything needs to change and we need a revolution right now Um, and actually there's some people in need right now and and how to what's going to make a response better Um, and that takes I think a high level of 
of um, coherence in our analysis and actually being really sharp in our analysis to go, I'm making this compromise for a very good reason. And I might, you know, think about a police response or think about incarceration, but this is the reason why I'm compromising my revolutionary stance. Um, and if we can articulate it well enough, then um, it might not always be the right thing, but at least that we're having that awareness of we're moving out of, you know, our, fun, our fundamental movement and social justice stance. I wonder what the government would have thought if we'd um, said in the rapid assessment brief, um, if you want to end sexual violence, just end capitalism. Um, well, I, I've, I told like... government, I've told government <laughs> that multiple times. <laughs> Whenever they talk to me about prevention, I always go, well, you do know we need to stop capitalist neoliberalism first and then... <laughs> Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line, which highlight a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, and we're broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We know that um, sexual violence and domestic violence um, has been an issue, as has uh, femicide, before the pandemic. Could you just tell us a little bit about this and how you conceptualise response approaches outside COVID-19 or big emergency um, responses? How we conceptualise sexual and domestic violence is really important. Um, Firstly, we need to be thinking about sexual and domestic violence as through an intersectional lens. So when I say that, I mean that different survivors of violence experience violence differently. Yeah. So we need to account for that in our account for difference within our responses. They can't just be white. They can't just be mainstream. Um, So, you know, an an example of this in Aotearoa, New Zealand is there is no national level ethnicity data when it comes to survivors. Um, the assumption is that we're all the same, apparently. Um, so th- th- that is appalling because if you don't have any national level data collection, and I know that some uh, ethnic community uh, services are actually um, advocating on this matter um, currently, um, if you don't have national level data, you can't you can't advocate for specific services, and we know. Uh, you know, from the research, we know that culturally specific responses are more effective. Um, so that's one thing. So taking conceptualizing sexual and domestic violence responses through an intersectional lens. Uh, the second part of that is also thinking about sexual and domestic violence uh, through a multi-sectoral lens. So you can't approach violence in a silo. Uh, Let me give you an example. We know that uh, from research that folks experiencing homelessness or uh, are in insecure housing experience higher rates of domestic and sexual violence. Uh, And sometimes their experiences of violence can uh, either causal or exacerbate um, their or, you know, lead to or exacerbate the, the factors that lead to their housing insecurity. So when, as a, as a sexual violence specialist, I'm telling you, when I think about housing, I think about it as a sexual violence issue. Uh, and I think actually, Miriam, maybe this is a good point to mention the J, the joint venture business unit in, in Aotearoa. 
New Zealand rates quite high for its um, family violence and sexual violence response during the pandemic um, because it had a few different elements. And um, as I was kind of reflecting and talking through my experience during this um, last year and a half, one of the factors I identified was New Zealand government has committed to developing what's called a joint venture for the elimination of sexual and domestic, I'm sorry, family and sexual violence, which means that we currently have a minister for family and sexual violence, for the prevention of family and sexual violence. And that minister is responsible for, for many things, but one of it is to actually coordinate 10 ministries to ensure that a cross-ministerial approach um, is happening for this issue, which means that, you know, no longer there's silos of the Ministry of Health coming up with their plan and their workforce and their ideas of how to do this um, and Ministry of Social Development coming up with something else. And I and in the journey of the pandemic, actually having this um, joint venture with its joint venture business unit, it's called, which is basically the operational government arm, meant that we actually had a one point access from a sector perspective to government so that they could go off and find the relevant appropriate people in the Ministry of Education that we needed to talk to to make sure that appropriate, we could try and have access to children and young people um, that might be in unsafe situations during lockdowns or Ministry of Health to make sure that we had, we understood what PPE we needed to use and um, getting good guidance around it. So that really helped um, at a pandemic level, but it's also helping ongoing because we're having these conversations across issues a lot more. How can we sort of look at uh, moving away from reactive approaches and having a more proactive approach taken by um, government and bodies? I mean, I was very fortunate to, to um, be working with Hella before the pandemic. And um, what I was surprised around was actually the lack of inclusion into any of our emergency planning in Aotearoa around family and sexual violence. And that for me seemed like, you know, such a, for a country, you know, that does experience earthquakes. And as we talked about before, you know, we do have, um, we will be impacted by the climate um, catastrophe it just seemed that there was this essential part that was missing. It's a really important proactive piece that we need to do um, moving forward. Yeah, the, so just adding to that, Miriam, the the global structure around emergency response, I think um, creates a kind of uh, an assumption from devel- developed countries. Um, I'd say that with, um, what do you call these? Inverted commas inverted commas, developed um, Western um, countries, there is an assumption that uh, the cluster approach or, you know, uh, global best practices around emergencies only happen in the third world um, or happen in developing countries, um, you know, inverted commas. So (laughs) I wasn't surprised that, you know, Aotearoa New Zealand didn't have, well, from my perspective, uh, any kind of national cohesive plan, emergency plan that factored in sexual and domestic violence, um, despite the fact that we have so much great research that came out of the horrific uh, Christchurch earthquakes uh, and the spikes in domestic violence during and following and service responses around that. Um, We have that research. Uh, We're so lucky it was localised research, but for some reason um it, you know there was no impact on the the, the planning uh at a national level so i guess um 
just coming back to your question around proactive versus reactive planning, you know, first you need to start with a recognition that emergency responses begin long before an emergency ever happens. Um, and we've already touched on the fact that I, you know, we we conceptualize emergencies a little different to the way the government does. Um, we acknowledge that sexual and domestic violence, there was a domestic, an emergency around sexual and violence, sexual and domestic violence long before COVID. The response doesn't isn't always specific to the emergency. So often when we think about COVID-19, it's very reactive. So, you know, what do you do in the event of a highly contagious airborne virus? Oh, PPE. Oh, hand sanitizing. Yeah, so very specific to COVID. Um, but what we're not thinking is taking a step back and taking a more structural approach because um, what we really need to have had prior to the, uh, the pandemic even happening is a really strong national infrastructure. And this is like totally me on my soapbox right now, a sustainable workforce that is like super well-funded, super well-trained, resourced. So we need a strong national infrastructure. We need that to be put in place prior to an emergency ever happens. We also, you know, and you touched on this um, earlier Charizard is the government needs to create funding structures that actively avoid competition between frontline services uh, to embed within the system a way to normalize and encourage collaboration, knowledge sharing, and collective action. Um, now, I that is a totally idealistic um, thing for me to say because. The government's not going to do that within the capitalist framework. And I do think that sometimes uh, as a sector, as someone within the sector, we have to realise that um, we can't rely on the government um, to mobilise us. We need to mobilise ourselves. And I think the rapid assessments are a beautiful example of the sector coming together and realising actually it's we're better when we're together. Listen to frontline services, activists, researchers, and survivors of violence. Um, they know what's up. Um, they could have told you that before COVID-19 ever hit our shores that we weren't prepared. Is there anything you'd like to add, Miriam? The only thing I was thinking about is um, the the concept of funding. And I think, so it's, it's figuring out the nuance of that as well, of where is the money coming from? How is it being articulated? And then, so a lot of what my role has been doing is trying to translate and understand the behaviour of government and actually figure out what's useful for the community and what's useful for government and try and find a win-win, which isn't always possible, or try and at least go, yes, this is a tedious task of collecting this data, but it might give us more money later down the track. So that's just a um, kind of part of our, our own preparedness, I suppose, is and being more proactive is starting to understand the systems that we're trying to battle is a really, you know, that kind of tools of the oppressor won't free us, but it can help us be a bit more strategic at times and go, and when do we want to engage with it and when do we not want to? Um, and if we are going to engage, actually understand those tools. And that's all we have time for today. You were just listening to a conversation with Hala Nasser and Miriam Jaa Sessa on sexual violence and the COVID COVID nineteen pandemic in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send us an email to 
womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program and it's produced by women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. And it's broadcast across the country on the Community Radio Network. And we have funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. And our programs can be downloaded from our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You can also listen back to all of our programs on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Shahrazad Law, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We leave you with a song by Māori artist Holly Smith, who reproduced her most popular song, "Bathe in the River" in Te Reo Māori. Tukunda